The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see you on this blustery night. The brave ones, <laughs> or stupid, depending on how you look at it. I want to just mention, as I do once a month, about uh, the system of dana. This word dana means generosity, and some of you may not be clear, but Common Ground doesn't ever charge for any of its programs, and uh, we specifically do our best uh, with an open heart to offer all the programs freely. We don't talk about suggested donations or anything like that, but it's more this idea of freely offering. And of course, the only way that happens is everybody who's done whatever they did in the past, all the volunteers, all the contributors, they've sort of allowed us to then offer everything as a free gift. And so we remind people, I do usually once a month, to whenever you think about Common Ground, whenever you come come to Common Ground, to really work on receiving it as a free gift. No strings attached. So if you feel guilty about it, then look at that like, That's not receiving it as a free gift. And then, if you're ever inspired to support the center, to give money, to, you know, pay for the ordinary expenses that a place like this has, support the teachers, things like that, the office staff, then let that be, from you, a free gift. Not because you feel guilty, because it makes you happy to give, to offer your time, to offer your money. And, you know, this is not how we normally operate in the world. It's mostly... You know, we're kind of seeing what we can get away with and it can be strategic and usually often a lot of tension because as creatures, you know, we're really worried about survival. Even if we don't think we are, we are. And money for us is like shelter and food, you know. And so we're always a little careful about that. That's a very tight way to live, even though that's how we mostly live. So we try to change it up here at Common Ground and and do it in a different way. And, you know, for the last 20 years, it's worked well enough. We have a building, we have a retreat center, we have paid staff. I have, a, you know, receive enough support to have a middle-class life. And uh, so it's pretty amazing. But it requires that we reflect on receiving whatever we receive as a free gift, and then just being attentive to any way we're motivated to give back. And there's so many different ways to do that. Even just having good wishes and appreciation is part of giving back, part of supporting freely giving. So if you ever have any questions about that, feel free to connect with me or any of the leaders here. There's a sheet of paper next to the donation bowl that says a little bit more about this if you're interested. So for those of you who've been coming around the last month or so, I've been talking about this particular discourse the Buddha gave, or talk the Buddha gave, on the foundations of mindfulness, called the Satipatthana Sutta. Sutta just means discourse or talk. Sati is the word for mindfulness. So the foundations of mindfulness are the four ways of establishing mindfulness. Some Those are some of the ways it's translated. And we're uh, using Joseph Goldstein's book, that's talking about this particular discourse. It's called Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. You don't need to get the book 
but it is a great resource if you want to get one. And the first part of the book, it's uh, Joseph talking about the Buddhist instructions for how to pay attention, how to be mindful. And then we're going to start now with tonight and then weeks from now, looking at all the 13 ways, the 13 places, I should say, the Buddha suggests that we practice being mindful. So first we need to understand, well, what does it mean? What is that mind that is mindful? What does that look like? And then, what do I do with that mind that is mindful? Well, we look at the breath, or we open to the breath, as we did tonight with the instructions. So just to review, the basic instructions for mindfulness is to cultivate ardency, be clearly aware, or tracking our experience. Ardency is... It's a force of the heart, force of the mind, that recognizes, just to make it provocative, recognizes the danger and distractedness. When my mind is superficial and distracted and thinking and worrying about things that ultimately aren't very important, it's actually dangerous. You know, it's easy to make mistakes when we're consumed by things that are ultimately not so important. Like the t-shirts, I'm sure you've seen that as a woman, oh my God, I forgot to have children. Have you seen that? (laughs) But it's like living our life and then we've forgotten to take care of the most important things. How many of us have had nightmares of, you know, like realizing, oh my God, I have an exam and I haven't even opened the book yet, right? Have you had that one? (laughs) Or something, you know, you're, you're equivalent to it, like a paper's due and I'm in the middle of a course and I forgot to show up at any of the courses. So we had, a lot of them have to do with school. It's a place of trauma for so many of us. But in any case, you know, with the practice of mindfulness, we have to realize that there is danger in being distracted, being superficial, being letting our mind get consumed about things that we know ultimately aren't that important. And the flip side, the positive side of that sense of danger, that appropriate sense of danger, is, an, uh, an, uh, is a sense of the possibility of freedom or the possibility of putting down the load. And that creates a force in the mind, like we're willing to try something new because we know we're in danger or we know that we don't know what we're doing yet, so we're willing to explore, take some chances, That helps us break out of the habit and train the mind in being clearly aware, like taking the attention and knowing the breath coming in and sustaining that knowing of the breath, knowing of the breath, knowing of the breath going out, knowing of the breath going out. And we break the cycle. We're not thinking about whether we're doing a good job with mindfulness of breathing or wondering if other people are doing what they're supposed to be doing or you know, is this the best place to learn meditation, or anything like that. We're just knowing the experience of the breath and dropping the world, the world of our thoughts about this and that, our evaluations of this and that. We're putting down so much, and that's that tracking. So we need that force of ardency in order just to begin to take the attention and connect with something that isn't the cognitive conceptualizing process of the mind. And then realizing that 
I mean, there's an awakening. We realize that that's a different universe. Being mindful to sensation, to sound, to sight, to mental activity is mental activity. It's an awakening. And we steady, we become steady in this present momentness, you could say, or mindful awareness of the present moment. We become steady there. And it's like the whole system, the whole process of the mind, the knowing mind, it gets in a groove. There's actually a feeling, an experience of being held in the present momentness as opposed to being pushed around by this and that idea, one idea following the next. It's a very different quality. You could even say it's an altered state of mind, except it's fundamentally the normal mind. And what we normally consider the normal mind is the you know, diluted mind or the scattered mind or the mind that's caught up, being driven, being pushed around by its attachments, its fears, its hopes, its desires. It's a restless, unstable mind. And so when we have samadhi, that's a word we use to describe this steadiness. So when there's ardency and clearly tracking, clearly aware of the mind-body experience, and, a real, and realizing the present momentness, the dynamic present momentness of this experience, and stabilizing in that, then we start noticing the experience of samadhi, this beautiful, stable balance of mind. It has some resilience. So even if a disturbing memory were to arise, or, you know, the cat would come into our meditation, or a Harley-Davidson motorcycle would drive down the, ho- the road next to the house, we'd, we'd be sensitive to that. But the non-attachment, the mind just letting things be, tracking present moment experiences moment by moment by moment, it has its own coherence, its own stability that's not so easily knocked over. Normally, you know, our mind is like desperate for something like we may be wet the breath, but we're like waiting for something to worry about, plan about, think about. So as soon as even the little nibble of a thought comes, we leave the breath and we grab, finally, some something interesting or perhaps interesting. Because the mind doesn't trust ordinary experience. It's looking for something that lends itself to self-drama. Like, I wonder what that person's doing. I mean, that, there's some drama in that. Am I better than or worse than that person? Better meditator or worse meditator? Does he really know what he's talking about? So we, it's like these are the problems that the mind is used to taking up. And what it's not used to taking up is just this grounding, opening to the things as they are, what we call dhamma, the way it is. So these are the basic instructions for establishing mindfulness And the Buddha says, once you've established that steadiness, then you're going to notice the inner experience, the outer experience, both the inner and outer. This is what we talked about the last couple of weeks, the arising and the passing of experience. And he's basically talking about what that steadiness will do. It will lead to a refinement of understanding. So once you've steadied the mind or uh, developed this beautiful balance of mind, then what the mind is knowing, whether it's the breath or 
any object of uh, awareness, then the mind is going to go from seeing the specific characteristics of that experience to basically seeing what's the underlying nature of all experience. And the underlying nature of all experience, so that we've, we've got the advantage, the Buddha's pointed this out to us, is that everything is changing. So instead of like noticing the specific sensations of the breath coming in like that, coolness of the air as it passes through the nostrils, and then kind of vibratory touching as the air touches the nostrils, and whatever else you feel specifically in that experience, instead of just noticing that, you might begin to notice the changingness of that. That the sensations of the breath coming in are changing. You see, it's two different things. And noticing the changingness of the breath coming in that changiness of the breath coming in is the same thing as the changiness of the sounds you're hearing right now, or the changiness, the impermanence of the visual experience you're having right now. Every experience, when you go beyond your thought about that experience and beyond the specific characteristics of that experience, you'll see that everything is changing. Everything about it is dynamic, process, nature, not static, not fixed in any way. And so this is what the Buddha said. You take that stability and you apply it to an object, like the breath, and you have this process of insight, basically seeing things on a surface, seeing things more deeply, seeing things in their ultimate essence, I guess you could say. That it's changing, that any experience ultimately is unsatisfying, meaning that tendency of the mind to want to be satisfied by having an experience can't be had with this experience. It's it's fundamentally limited or unsatisfying. You actually see that about it. So like, again, you're aware of the breath going in and out. First, initially, you know, when the mindfulness isn't very strong, what we're really aware of is the thought, I'm watching my breath. That's actually the object of meditation. The mind that's paying attention is paying attention to the thought, I'm supposed to be watching the breath. I am watching the breath. You know, and any other thoughts, I'm doing a good job watching the breath. I'm doing a bad job. So the mind is attending to the thoughts you have about your mindfulness of breathing. That's the beginning. It's okay. We all begin there. And then we hear the instructions 150 times, and it, it dawns on us, oh, sensations. He's saying, pay attention to the sensations. So it's like we go through the thoughts, and we notice, oh, there's actual sensations of breathing. The belly is actually expanding. It's actually contracting. Or the air is actually touching. There's a touching sensation. There's warmth and coolness and vibration and all the other actual sensations associated with the breathing process that can be woken up to, can be felt directly in the moment, moment by moment. So we start to be able to do that. The thoughts recede back or off into the periphery, and then what comes into the foreground of the awareness are the specific characteristics of the breathing process. You know, wherever you're feeling the breath, it will, and whatever particular breath you're feeling in that moment, it will have specific sensations associated with it, right? And it will feel a certain way. 
unlike any other breath, right? Each breath. So if it's feeling like the same old thing, it's because you're in your concept. The concept of the breath is quite static, right? So it feels like, oh, this isn't very interesting. But when you're actually aware of the specific characteristics, it starts to get more interesting because each breath is completely unique. There's no two breaths the same. If you're watching the waves on the shore, it can get really boring until you begin to see the dynamic, changing nature, the uniqueness of each wave. And then once you're in that specific reality of the breath, the sensations of the breath, then it's just shifting your awareness to the more subtle truth of the change, the ever-present changingness of the breath, of the sensations of the breath, or of the waves, that they never, it never ceases. It's always unfolding. And it doesn't matter what phenomena, breath or any other, that you're paying attention to. If you're steady, if the attention is steady, you'll see the process nature of that phenomena. You'll see how unsatisfying that is. You'll see how impersonal it is. These are what we call the, instead of the specific characteristics, we call these the general or the universal, because it's true for everything, whatever you pay attention to. This, seeing this is what leads to letting go. And so the Buddha ends the description. He says, uh, or mindfulness that there is a body or there is this in-breath or out-breath is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So this is what leads to the experience of freedom. We can't become free by wanting to be free. The heart, mind that lets go, that is a natural arising. The letting go happens when the mind sees the underlying nature of any experience and sees that grasping or holding or attachment doesn't help, isn't functional because of the very nature of the experience. It doesn't make sense to the mind to grasp. So the letting go arises, the freedom arises, when the mind, when the heart, understands the underlying nature of this. And it doesn't matter what experience here and now that the attention tunes into, because any experience will do. You can see the impermanent, unsatisfying and impersonal nature of thought, of sound, of sight, of sensation. Anyone will reveal the same nature, which is the cause for the heart letting go. So that's the general scheme, and then the Buddha is going to give us 13 places to apply this mindfulness, one of which, as I've been talking about, is mindfulness of the breath. And as I mentioned in the instructions, the Buddha says, First he sets us up, he says, And how, practitioners, does one in regard to the body abide contemplating the body? Here, gone to the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut, or perhaps he would say nowadays, or to Kamagam Meditation Center, or your local meditation center. One sits down, having folded one's leg crosswise, right? that's how they sat in those days, back then, 2,500 years ago. They didn't sit on a chair or use a kneeling bench, evidently. 
So, but for us, you don't have to get tight about sitting cross-legged. He says, uh, one sits cross-legged. Sets one's body upright, erect, right? So this noble posture that has this kind of sense of, you know, it's really mirroring the intention of the practice, which is to be clear. You know, it's hard for the mind to be clear when the body is expressing just the opposite. Now, everybody's body's a little different. As we get older, as we have, have had injuries, it may, we may not look like that, you know, perfect body sitting in this perfect posture. But every body has a way to express this integrity, this intention of clarity. And it doesn't involve a lot of muscular effort. If you're using a lot of muscular effort, what your body is manifesting is greed. Like, I'll show you, you know, like, I'll get what I want. It's, it's a form of leaning forward into the practice. Like, so how to, how the posture itself can manifest this intention to be right in the middle. So this posture is expressing the qualities or the attitude of honesty and release and a pure honesty or pure interest in the way it is. One is, and then, so after he mentions having the body erect, the Buddha says, and established, establishes mindfulness in front of one. Or another way it's translated, establishing mindfulness to the fore. Some academics or translators thinks that the Buddha is talking about the four meaning the front of the nostrils or just in front of the nostrils. But others, and this is where I come down, think that that phrase, establishing mindfulness to the fore, is really the sense, you know, as a creature, especially as a creature that's very visually oriented, we have a sense like if we're going to deal with something in our life, we like to deal with it right here. So even when we're thinking about something, so we're not actually, you know, using our hands or dealing with something in this out in front of us, but there's a sense of like we're chewing on it right here in front of us, right? You know that feeling? Okay, this is what's going on in my life. This is what I have to deal with. So this, like right here in front of us, is a metaphor, you know, in our minds. It's a metaphor for the way it is, what's relevant. It's right here in front of us. And so what we're doing is we're establishing, we're saying, inviting the mind, encouraging the mind to establish mindfulness right here with what's relevant, right here. And right here in this space of what's relevant, we notice the next instruction is to notice the breath coming in and to notice the breath going out. Breathing in long, one knows the breath is long. Breathing out a long breath, one knows the breath is long. This is what the Buddha says. Breathing in a short breath, one knows breathing in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath, one knows breathing out a short breath. Now here I think the Buddha is saying that it's not like you should be breathing in long for a while and then you should be breathing in short for a while. I think what he's saying here is that 
when the breath is long, the mindfulness is present enough. There's enough ardency, enough of that being clearly aware of the present moment, so that when it's a long breath coming in, the mind knows there's a long breath coming in. And when it's a short breath going in or out, the mind knows this is a short breath coming in or going out. If it's smooth or rough, the mind is there enough, the attention is there enough to know. Oh yeah, it's like this. This is how it is there in that, you know, in this experience right here in front. Short breath, long breath, smooth breath, rough breath. And it doesn't matter what the breath is. What matters is, is the presence, mindful presence, established enough to know how it is in that moment? Is it really showing up and knowing it as it is? So that's the first, you know, after establishing mindfulness in front to the fore, knowing the breath coming and knowing the breath going out, is there enough sensitivity to distinguish the quality of that particular breath? That's how we break the cycle of thinking or being identified with thought, caught up in thought, is by tracking the lived experience of the in-breath enough to know its quality, the out-breath enough to know its quality. And then the next set of instructions, the Buddha says, and he changes it. So instead of one knows the long breath or short breath, he's, it's a little, has a little bit more of an intention, an intentionality. He says, one trains, right? So we're training the mind. One trains. I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body. I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. So, Instead of thinking this as being a, a particular effort to see the whole body, it's much more about loosening up the mind. So there we are, you know, we're attending to the in and out breath with enough sensitivity that we notice if it's long or short or smooth or rough or whatever its particular qualities are. And now the Buddha is saying, I'm tra- train your mind when breathing in to experience the whole body. So we're relaxing the mind a little bit, relaxing the attention a little bit. So we're not just focused on the just the sensations of the breath coming in at the nostrils or the feeling of the belly expanding, but that in that experience of feeling the breath coming in, the whole body is there, all the sensations are there. Where else would they be? Like, where do you know the breath coming in? Well, it's right here in the mind. The sensations are being known in the mind. And where are the sensations of the rest of the body? They're right there in the same place. So we relax the mind a little bit. The mind becomes, the attention becomes a little bit more spacious. And we're breathing in, we're knowing the in-breath, but we're knowing the whole body as we know the breath coming in. And we know the whole body as the breath goes out. So it's a more inclusive awareness, knowing the breath coming in knowing the breath going out. You see, the Buddha, with these instructions, he's helping us tease out unnecessary tension in the mind, unnecessary doing, right? We don't need to do that doing activity of just seeing the breath. It's not necessary. It actually distorts the deeper, like this refinement of understanding because there's a concept in the mind, see the breath, right? And that concept is not necessary in order to see the breath or know the breath. So we 
tease that out. We relax the mind, breathing in, experiencing the whole body. One trains, breathing out, experiencing the whole body. And then the next set of instruction is, I breathe in or breathing in. One trains, calming the whole body. Breathing out, one trains, calming the whole body. Or the way that it's translated, uh, this one teacher translates it, is uh, calming bodily formations instead of the whole body. Breathing in, calming bodily formation. One trains, calming bodily formations. So the way to think about this is, you know, all the ways the mind, the thinking mind, is involved in the body, all the mental activity that arises around the experience of knowing the breath coming in, knowing the breath going out. We're just, it's as if the wisdom of the mind is saying, honey, you don't need that now. You don't need that now. It's okay. It's okay to, the calming is not so much like we're trying to be calm as the cessation of unnecessary mental activity associated with breathing. I don't need to have any idea whatsoever about the breath, about it being my breath, about it being a good breath or a bad breath or whatever, to be aware of the breath and the body coming in. We don't need concepts of the body or the breath to be aware of the body. Right? And you see there's a, quite a difference. Like whatever image or concept we have about our body it has nothing to do really with the direct, right now, the direct experiencing of the body. It's like the idea of our body, you know, that has a particular shape and form, but when we tune in, and you might need to close your eyes to do this, when you tune into the body, right now, the actual experiencing of the body, sensation, does it have any particular shape? No, it's just this orb of sensation. It doesn't have shape unless we have a thought or image. Image is just a thought, right? Being projected on to the actual experience of body. So these are the four basic instructions. Later, in another talk the Buddha gave specifically on mindfulness of breathing, he gives an additional... Um, 12 instructions for the breath. So there turns out 16 instructions. These are just the first four. Knowing the, when the breath is long, knowing when it's short. Those are the first two. Training. One breathes in, experiencing the whole body. One breathes out, experiencing the whole body. Training. One breathes in, calming the whole body or calming bodily formations. One breathes out, calming bodily formations. So you can work with these four. They're pretty easy to remember, but if you forget them, just Google something like Mindfulness of the Body Buddha, and you'll get these basic instructions. Or get yourself a copy of the book. But the idea here is to be interested enough about this practice of the body. The Buddha made a big deal of the body. This is not the only place he basically raved about the value of being mindful of the body. There are many places, and you know, he taught for 45 years in the collected teachings that have been passed down, you know, the 
coming out of the Pali canon, it's called. So this is generally accepted that the best representation of the actual teachings of this historic person, it's huge. You know, they were really, they revered these teachings and they were really, they didn't, they had a written language back then, but it was only used for business purposes like inventory and things like that. They, all the sacred teachings were never written down. It was like, it was too gross of a thing to actually write it down. So they used uh, different mnemonic devices to memorize all the teachings. But it's an amazing collection. I don't know how many volumes, but you know, you could probably get it in a, a you need at least a dozen thick books to get all these talks that the Buddha gave. And there's a lot of repetition. And in so many of them, he's emphasizing mindfulness of the body. In one he says, um, practitioners, when anyone has developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body, Mara does not find an opportunity and support. Mara is this sort of mythological or symbolic symbol of all of the deluded negative tendencies of our mind. So, the evildoer. But in, in Buddhism, the evildoer is just the conditioned, unwholesome conditioned tendencies of the mind. So, Mara finds a support when we're not mindful of the body. In the same way, when we are mindful of the body, and when that mindfulness is continuous, then there's no way for this mind of ours to be overrun by our negative habits. It really interrupts those negative habits. And you can just imagine, like, let's just say you've got a really difficult interaction, difficult meeting at work, difficult meeting with a friend or difficult person in your life, and uh, you really don't, you know, like, it's a situation where a lot of harm could be set in motion. You could say something that could create a lot of problems for yourself and the other person. And somebody, you know, says, well, you should just be really, really mindful of your body as you go into that interaction and sustain that mindfulness of the body. You're going, how is that going to help? I need to know what to do. But the thing about being mindful of your body, if you're really intimate with your body, it's hard not to be intimate with everything. And that's what I meant, and that's what the Buddha meant when he said, Breathing in, one trains, experiencing the whole body. Breathing out, one trains, experiencing the whole body. He's basically showing that when you're mindful of the body, you necessarily are mindful of everything. So if we're sustaining this mindful awareness of the body and we engage this, we show up for this interaction and things start to get a little heated and negative emotional and mental patterns get triggered and... All of that then, of course, all of that tendency to be getting tight, to be getting angry, to want revenge, to want to hurt the person back, or whatever might have gotten triggered, all of that gets amplified. Because of the continuity of mindfulness, all of those, the arising of emotions, the sort of sort of thinking, inserting itself into the moment, all of that is seen, and not only is it seen, the underlying intentions and the quality of the intention underlying those, you know, tendencies, all of that is seen. 
And what is seen, what wisdom sees, what the heart sees, is like, this is how one goes to hell. Like, this is how everything gets tight and entangled and difficult. And it's relatively easy to abandon or to get out of the room or to do something instead of just acting out those negative intentions. But if we're not mindful of the body or not mindful generally, we get swept away. We don't notice the unwholesomeness of the tendencies that have gotten triggered until later when the karma comes back, the karmic fruit comes back and like nothing's working in our life because nobody likes us or, you know, whatever the consequences of some bad mistake might be where you say something you wish later you hadn't said. And then all of a sudden there's all that pain because now you have regret, but it's in a way too late because you've already set in motion that harm. There already are real consequences to what happened. But if we have that continuous mindfulness of the body, of the breath, it's really a powerful protection. So you might explore this, just uh, like noticing how protected you are, how much more skillful you are when you're sustaining this mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the body through your day, and how vulnerable you are to just being pushed around by habit energies when you're not grounded in the present moment. Something triggers some emotion, and because the mind is not in the habit in that moment of knowing it's just a thought being known, just a sensation being known, it takes it personally. It takes the arising of that emotional pattern personally, and then it personally acts it out. It becomes, in a sense, who we are in that moment. Because there's no space of mindfulness present that says, oh, it's just a thought. It's just a painful emotion. It's just this tendency that is arising. And it's a tendency that causes problems. You know, one of the things, when the mind is really steady, has samadhi, clearly aware, has some resilience, when a negative pattern gets triggered, the mind just sees right through to the core, sees the underlying intention, which maybe is fear or neediness or wanting to strike back. And it just sees like nothing good comes from acting on that intention. And that's just the truth. And we learn this directly. It's not that we need some school teacher or parent to tell us that when you're mean, nothing, when you act on meanness, nothing good comes from it. We can directly see, like moment to moment, when the heart is experiencing that meanness, the intention of meanness, wanting to hurt somebody, right? You can directly see that this hurts right now, and whatever sets, this sets in motion is also going to hurt. Not just me, probably a lot of other people, but definitely me. There's no way for me, for this mind, to be identified with that tendency to be mean without it immediately hurting. But we pick it up all the time. And why? Simply because we're not paying attention. Nobody is consciously mean. Nobody is mean when there's full mindful awareness. We're only acting on meanness, the intention to harm another, or even harm ourselves. right? We only do that when there's a lacking of mindfulness. It just is not sane, but we don't see that. And so 
it seems rational. From a distracted, superficial point of view, it seems appropriate to be mean. It seems appropriate to be greedy, to be, you know, all the ways, all the ways we've discovered are not so wholesome. I want to leave it here. So there's, uh, about 15 minutes to hear from each other. You probably have learned a lot in your life, both working with the breath and other aspects of body awareness that have been beneficial. You might have questions from this talk or anything about your practice that seems relevant. What comes to mind? Yeah, Cass. Cass, can you wait? Uh, could you sh- uh, shut off the fan? I think it's the middle switch in the bottom, not the top. No, in the thermostat. The middle on the bottom, yeah. There we go. Great, thanks. I'm so grateful. At first I was thinking, oh, mindfulness of the breath, of the breath again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Kindergarten. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really want to, you know, deal with the issues that I'm working on right now, but this came, you know, hit it right bullseye. Um, because I, you know, I had this regular practice of, of um, body scan every morning and that and that continuity of mindfulness of the body throughout the day. And, but lately, like maybe the last couple of months in some ways, I've really gotten away from it and I've really been like like the weather, up and down and thrown mm-hmm. back and forth and and you know painful, extremely painful and and acting on it. You know, and so, um, so it's helpful for me to sort of figure out, like, in some ways I'm attached to wanting to get back to where I was, but I can't because this is where I am now. Yeah. And, and to try and let go of that attachment. But, um, when you caused all this harm by, um, reacting to the pain that comes up, now what do I do? You know, yeah. It's, it's, do I just keep trying to um, go back to my practices? I mean, I'm like committed now. I'm going to be here every morning of the week. And, you know, I just, it's, it's just throwing me into serious practice now because yeah. it's, the consequences are just so much. And then, but then also part of it is, is just like the, Connecting directly with, you know, the pain that's there, whether it's grief or yeah. fear, regret, anger, regret, yeah. Yeah. And that's where you have to start because that's what's most real right now. And uh, sort of starting over with mindfulness of the body or mindfulness of the breath, that, that will, that motivation is there now too. So you can feel that motivation. But before you can immediately go there, because that could just be some aversion to what you have set in motion. So to make sure that it's not just aversion that's bringing you back to your breath or to your body, be willing to feel what has been set in motion. And uh, and you have the skills, you know, Cass has been practicing for a long, long time. But we need all of our good friends to practice with that. We need the steadiness of mind. We need a lot of forgiveness, a lot of patience a lot of compassion. We need the great perspective that this is what happens to human beings. We do get swept away. The Buddha used that 
metaphor a lot, being swept away by a flood. And where he lived and taught for most of his life was in the floodplain of the Ganges River. So this was the most common natural disaster in the middle of the night, or unsuspectingly, the river rising and literally sweeping the village away. And this is what we notice in the mind. And it makes us have a lot of compassion when other people are expressing road rage or just just you can't deal with them, you know. And we just want to blame them. But we realize, oh, this is what happens to human beings. Circumstances arise. The human being doesn't know what to do with the pain. They personalize it, and then they personally react to it, either by closing down, or you know how it is. We want other people to hurt when we hurt. So making other people hurt, or whatever. So it just brings a lot of perspective. So that may be the first part, is just that that big loving, of course. Of course it hurts. When the heart is like this, when these things have been set in motion, then it feels like this. Can this be okay? Is there some way for wisdom and love to create enough space to hold all of what's being felt right now? So to find a skillful way to include how crazy, messy, you know, your life, whatever it is you're feeling. And then that that's a grounding, you know. And then from that place, you can rediscover your old friend that you've trained with for so many years. Oh, and here's the body, right where I left it, you know, right in the middle of this life. Because that's the great thing about the body as an anchor, or the breath as an anchor. It's always right here, right in the middle of the storm or the swirl. I used that word swirl a couple months ago in a talk, and everybody later told me they thought I was saying squirrel. <laughs> but no, it's not squirrel, it's swirl. <laughs> messiness of our lives. Thanks so much, Cass, for sharing. Yeah, it does. Yeah, Tom. Mark, could you say a little bit more about the the decision um, involved in expression or non-expression of experience of emotion in, uh, like, holistic health, mental health, often there's, you know, the conversation of unexpressed emotion leads to constriction in the body. Um, but if it leads to harm in expression, it seems sometimes I, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Well, ultimately, we, uh, not even ultimately, I mean, right from the beginning, uh, it's clear that repression isn't healthy. So the, we really want to make sure that we're not seeing the practice as a kind of repression. Now, there is a place for suppression, but it's a very conscious act of saying, like, uh, this is not okay, and uh, I don't have the skill or the space in the mind, the wisdom in the mind, to transmute this energy. Because negative emotion is just life energy. There isn't anything inherently bad anywhere except, like from a Buddhist point of view, the only evil thing is the absence of clarity, ignorance, right? So any emotion that's gotten triggered, the only thing that makes it ultimately bad is the not understanding what it is. 
And so what that generally means is when anger, for example, has gotten triggered, and, you know, as you suggest, it's a dangerous thing if we just act it out. It's also dangerous if we suppress or repress it. Um, so what we want to do is we want to understand what it is. It is just the feeling and the associated content. That's all it is. It's not more or less than that. Then the question is, well, what what is the harm of letting that move? We don't actually need to say anything out loud in order to let it move. So we start to get really good. Now, initially in practice, we're quite afraid of those strong negative emotions when they arise. But later, our any defense that we attempt wears us out because it doesn't really work anyway. Suppression doesn't really work. Certainly, repression doesn't work. Fear of that emotion doesn't work. But even suppression only works temporarily if we're skillful, you know, of redirecting the, the mind away. But ultimately, what works is just to let things move. But that doesn't, that's different than getting identified with a strong emotion and acting it out as if it's true. As if it's some ultimate truth. That I am angry. I deserve to be angry. You are wrong. You shouldn't have done that. That content may be there, but the mind, to some degree at least, understands that's just a thought being known. And that it's it's going right from the thought, and not taking the bait, and dropping back into the what's actually more relevant, which is the heart hurts like this right now. The body and mind is tight like this right now. And that tightness wants to move. And why not let it move? Why not relax with the energy of anger, relax with the energy of greed, relax with the energy of loneliness, or any what we would call painful or afflictive emotion. Why not let it do what emotion wants to do, which is move? But we don't need to act it out. It's hard because you know how the body and mind, they mirror each other so much that when there's a lot, like when we're sitting and there's a lot moving, as soon as the mindfulness wavers or gets weak, we might immediately believe it. Like, sometimes in my practice, um, especially a long time ago, a lot of terror, fear came up for me. And after, you know, practicing for a while, I began to realize it didn't have anything to do with what was going on around me. It's not like I was in a scary situation or had any reason to be afraid. I was often in the middle of a long retreat. And there was nothing to be afraid of. It was a really safe place. But it was just really strong terror, fear. And then, so I, I learned to sit with it, you know, and to relax with it and to let it move. And I noticed that as soon as I lost my mindfulness, I would very quickly assume that something was terribly wrong. And because nothing was obviously wrong, the only thing, the only story my mind could create is, my practice is terribly wrong. You know, like I'm really not doing it, and they're gonna find out, <laughs> or something like that. And uh, because I needed a story, you know, in order to act it out. But then the practice would, you know, eventually reassert itself. The tendency to practice to just notice, oh, that's just a yucky feeling being known. And then it could just move the movement of emotion. Now it doesn't happen as strongly, but it's still there as a tendency of my mind to feel fear. <coughs> but I don't, I'm not confused by it as much. 
and I can have difficult interactions that easily would lend itself to projecting the fear on the situation. What does this person think of me? I need this person to like me or whatever, you know, that kind of social social fear. But I'm much better at distinguishing between this raw underlying fear and what's going on in the surface. And, and doing my best to just let that emotion be that emotion and deal with what's on the surface of my life based on what's actually being seen, actually being experienced on this level. Because in Dharma practice, when you undertake this path of awakening, which means you're training in mindfulness, you're becoming more sensitive, you're going to feel a lot of things that have nothing to do with what's on the surface. You'll feel a lot of joy and happiness, but your life on the surface may be quite miserable. You just got fired, nobody loves you, and you have hemorrhoids. <laughs> but, but there's just a lot of lightness and joy. And you'll let that lightness and joy, you won't hold to it, you know it's just how it is right now. Or just the opposite, something really heavy and dark. Um, it has to be real quick. You were talking about um, people, um, somebody saying, just be with your breath and it'll be okay. It seems to me, and I get frustrated all the time about this, that there's like a conflict or a struggle between being in the moment, just existing and being aware, and long-term thinking or planning or making goals, or even with meditation, like I have, you know, it's like, should I just show up today, or should I like have a plan to, sh- to do it every day in a system or something? Yeah. Well, for the formal time when you're sitting, it's very easy to say, to make a very strong resolve, and you might even need to specifically articulate it in your mind at the very beginning of the sit, that for this 30 minutes, or however long you've resolved to sit, for this period of time, this isn't the time to plan, this isn't the time to worry, this isn't the time to fantasize. So, when I notice the mind doing that, I'll remember honey, this isn't the time. There's lots of times for that, but this isn't the time. This is the time for this other activity of seeing things as they are. So that you can definitely do. And then in daily life, when you're not formally meditating, you can just ask yourself in a friendly way, is this thinking necessary? Has this planning already been done? Or is this the appropriate time and place for this analysis, this planning, this imagining this and because a lot of it is just done to fill space because we're neurotically afraid of quietness and so the mind just because of habit unconscious habit and patterns just has this tendency to fill space and now with technology it's even easier to keep filling space and we really want to um, find skillful means for having quiet and all the little and big ways we can. You know, not just think we have to go away for a week of silent uh, Buddhist meditation retreat. But there's so many little ways. Like, okay, you can listen to the radio on your way to work, but when you're driving home, you just have silence in the car. Or, you know, you know, after 9.30 at night, unless there's an emergency, I don't check my cell phone, I don't answer calls, I don't look at emails. 
you know, just little things like that. And if that's too early, then make it 10 or make it 1030 or, do you know what I mean? We can all find little ways to, to honor, value, quietness. That will support the formal meditation because then the value is finding ways to express itself out in daily life too, not just in that 30 minutes a day. We need to leave it here, so we'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Enough time for one or two breaths together. Appreciating the silence. Letting go of the words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.